So this is a fascicle from the Shogogenzo called Zenki, uh, meaning on functioning fully. If you remember last week I brought up a koan that um, talks about the dialogue between Mantushri and uh, the traveling monk. And one of the things Mantushri said is ordinary people and sages dwell together, dragons and snakes intermingle. So what does it mean, intermingle? Dwell together, live together, function together. How do we function? Now this translation was done by, uh, the one I'm going to read, was done by Hubert Nierman, uh, Reverend Hubert Nierman, who passed away. He was a reverend at Shasta Abbey. And uh, in the introduction, he says, in the introduction to this uh, text, he says, as the postscript at the end of this discourse indicates, this talk was given by Dogen not only for the benefit of his monastic community, but also for the benefit of his lay followers, including his major lay patron, the governor of Izumi province. The discourse has an underlying assumption which may not be immediately evident to Western readers, namely that all humans have Buddha nature, and indeed all Buddha nature, and that Buddha nature is our true self. Thus, even though we may not yet have recognized that this is the case, nevertheless, he says, nevertheless, our Buddha nature is constantly functioning as Buddha nature at all times, in life and in death never ceasing or disappearing or lying dormant, ever displaying itself right before our very eyes. So this is Zenki from Dogen, this passage. Dogen said, quote, When we thoroughly explore what the great way of the Buddhas is, we find that it is a liberation from delusion and letting our true self manifest to the full. For some, this liberation from delusion means that life liberates us from life and death liberates us from death. Therefore, both our getting out of birth and death and our entering into birth and death are the great way. Both our laying birth and death aside and going beyond birth and death to the other shore are also the great way. Our true self revealing itself to the full is what life is, and life is our true self revealing itself to the full. At the time where our true self reveals itself, we can say that there is nothing that is not a full displaying of life, and there is nothing that is not a full displaying of death. It is the operating of this true self that causes life to come about, and causes death to come about, which is the Buddha nature. At the very moment when we fully manifest this functioning of our true self, it will not necessarily be something great or something small, or the whole universe, or some limited bit of it, or something drawn out of something short and quick. Our life at this very moment is the true self in operation. 
and the operating of this true self is our life at this very moment. It is uh, Dogen's language, and we have to, when you read Dogen's works, you have to you have to get to know how he wrote, how he thought, how he functioned in order to dive deeply to the meaning. It's a lot there. So it continues. Life is not something that comes and life is not something that goes. Life is not something that reveals itself and life is not something that is accomplished. Rather, life is a display of one's Buddha nature to the full. And that is also a display of one's Buddha nature to the full. You need to realize that both life and death occur in the immeasurable thoughts and things within ourselves. Also, calmly reflect upon whether this life of the present moment, as well as the various thoughts and things that coexist within this life, are a part of life or are not a part of there is nothing, not a single moment, not a single thought or thing that is not a part of life. There is nothing, not a single matter, not a single state of mind that is also not a part of life. For instance, life is like the time when I'm on board of a boat. While I'm on this boat, I manipulate the sails, I handle the rudder, I push the pumping pole. At the same time, the boat is carrying me along, and there is no I that is outside of this boat. My sailing in a boat is what makes this boat a boat. You need to do your utmost to explore through your training, through your training, through your practice, what is going on at this very moment. For at this very moment, there is nothing other than the world of the boat. The sky, the water, the shore, all have come, have become this moment of the boat. Which is completely different from an occasion when I am not on a boat. Thus, life is what I am making life to be. And I am what life is making me to be. While being carried on a boat, my body and mind, with their inner causes and outer conditions, are altogether a part of the way a boat functions. The whole of the great earth and the whole of the expanse of space are likewise a part of the way a boat functions. What this metaphor is saying is that life is what I is and I is what life. So, again, there's lots there. We have to figure out ways to unpack it. <laughs> but we have to see it in relation to our practice, to our lives, our living and our dying, as practitioners. One of the greatest challenges for us as practitioners is the work of embodying the Buddha Dharma. And then allowing it to function seamlessly through everyday activities. Right? And those who practice diligently often glimpse into the seamlessness 
of reality and actually lose themselves to the experiences, to a point of body and mind drop away, the Bhagavad says. But then not too long after that, it seems to fall apart. It seems that we're unable to keep it together, and this is something that uh, we deal with as teachers, working with students, and as practitioners in general. We see it, we think we got it. Then maybe a day, a week, a month later, if we're lucky, where does it go? And this is the common challenge that every practitioner has and will experience, whether a thousand years ago or a thousand years forth, which actually may be helpful to see that all the great teachers we talk about, we read about, also felt this way, recognized that challenge or worked with it. It's a common experience that we even chant about regularly. Encountering the Absolute is not yet enlightenment. So as frustrating as it is, we need to recognize that that's the work. That's the challenge. And there's no way around it. And it happens because our thinking minds naturally, naturally, of course, chop things up, reality, to small segments for the purpose of discerning, organizing, concluding, and functioning. We have to do this. It's not that there's anything wrong with the process or something we need to avoid. And by itself, the process is not an issue. So we're not trying to let it go or find another way to process necessarily. Problems begin to arise when we assign meaning to each segment, then identify with it, and use it to build mental formations. That's where we start to get muddied. When you assign meaning to a segment, not realizing that each segment is fully manifesting what you're looking for. What we feel is a trap. It's not a trap. But it feels like a trap. We assign the label of a trap, identify with it, and you know what happens next. So these conceptual structures we build cannot and do not reflect reality as it is. And because of that, they're bound to fall apart. They do fall apart. And we get upset, feel more frustrated, feel defeated, as if something was lost. But all that was lost, all that is lost, is what we create. All that was lost is what was not there to begin with. You. You as what you think you are. 
in this text, Dogen is asking us to explore the true meaning of fully functioning as a Buddha. Not questioning Buddha, asking what is fully functioning as a Buddha. How does it manifest? And he's asking that, he's asking us to look at that from the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, not from what we think about. But what's interesting here is that he's not asking you to simply change the way you function. And I think sometimes we, we get caught up in thinking that we have to function differently. Then we ask, well, how should I function? Look for instructions for that and then try to follow those instructions. And again, that doesn't work. Because it's not, essentially, fundamentally, it's not different than any other structures we need. It does fall apart as well. So he's not asking us to change anything. He's asking us, you, as the translator introduction says, says our Buddha nature is constantly, constantly functioning as Buddha nature at all times. Right? So he's asking you to begin from an understanding that it is already functioning at all times, in life and in death, never ceasing or disappearing, all lying dormant. Which is another thing we maybe we fall into that trap of thinking it is there, but it is not fully functioning, it is dormant, and my job is to bring it out to life. It is alive and well. So what's the difference? And when he says in the introduction, ever displaying itself, always displaying itself right before your eyes. He's saying there's never lacking of. Nothing ever missing. Which means it is seamless <coughs> and ceaseless regardless of whether or not you experience it. So when we feel in alignment, or when we are discombobulated, either way, fully functioning as discombobulated, as having clarity. Also when we create mental structures and when they fall apart, again, Fully functioning, never ceasing. We fight each other or when we are at peace. Essentially, it doesn't matter. And then he goes further and he says that life itself, life itself is liberating us from life. And death is liberating us from death. In other words, what we perceive to be the burdens and challenges of everyday life can liberate us from the burdens and challenges of everyday life. Not to run away from, but to recognize this is liberation. The gate of liberation. 
also what we perceive as the greatest fear of all, death, self-annihilation, can actually liberate us from death itself, or the fear of it. It's nowhere else. Our true self revealing itself to the full is what life is. And life is our true self revealing itself to the full. Life is a display of one's Buddha nature to the full, and death is also a display of one's Buddha nature to the full. Then he asks us to calmly reflect upon whether this life of the present moment, as well as the various thoughts and things that coexist with this life, Meaning everything that's going on in your mind, in our minds. Thinking it's difficult, thinking it's easy. We like it, we don't like it. Every bit of it is it. So he says, he asks us to reflect on that, to ask the question. And then he says, there is nothing, not a single moment, not a single thought or thing that is not a part of there is nothing, not a single matter, not a single state of mind. Again, every state of mind is it. And then it gives the example of being on a boat. And it says, when, I, when I'm on that boat, I manipulate the sails. I handle the rudder, I push the punting pole. At the same time, the boat is carrying me along. And there is no I that is outside this boat. So my sailing in the boat is what makes this boat a boat. It's not I am entering the boat because there is no boat without the entering. The entering is what makes a boat a boat. The driving is what makes a car a car. This is fully functioning because it's not chopped up. It's not separate. To the mind, of course it is. To the thinking mind, it is. My car is parked downstairs. Is it? How do you know? How do you know that there is something you call a car downstairs in the parking lot? What is it? What is it, unless you're in it functioning fully, and what are you until you go in, put the key in the ignition, start it, and drive? What comes together at the moment that you put the key in the ignition, turn it on, and drive? That's what we need to look at. And then he says, Life is what I am making life to be, and I am what. Life is making me to be. So the statement, this statement, life is what I make it to be and I am what life is making me to be, can be understood and embodied only when we realize that every ingredient in our life is a manifestation of Buddha nature. Every ingredient, not just the ones you like, and then discarding the ones you don't like. Which means 
means you open up the fridge, pantry, you look at all the ingredients you have there, and you cook the best meal possible with reverence and appreciation. Because there are no other ingredients. Don't knock on your neighbor's door and ask for different ingredients. Or maybe envy your neighbor that he or she has better ingredients, higher quality. No. Because that won't work either. Because you will not be satisfied with that meal either. That's how we have to recognize this life, this life, this death, both guaranteed. Every ingredient is what we have to use, recognize as fully endowed with Buddha nature. And then use it, and then treat it with care. Appreciation. Create the best life possible. Right now, right here, with what you have. So do we recognize this? And if so, if we do recognize it, how do you work with all the ingredients in your everyday life and then cook the best life possible? How can you function fully? What does it mean for you to function fully? And how does that live through you? So under your Zabutans, you'll find a copy of this text. And what I want to do together is see if we can a little bit, not that much time, but a little bit. Take a little time to uh, explore that on a personal level. What does it mean? How do you live it? Where would you like to go with it? So let's explore that and in an honest way. Not so much in a way that is uh, a textbook or, or teaching. We're all learning. We're all beginners. And we all have an opportunity here to maybe go a little deeper. So I'd like to open it up and just raise your hand and we can start the dialogue. Go. This paragraph, one, two, three, four, speaking about life is displaying on one's Buddha nature to perform. Death is also displaying on one's Buddha nature to perform. You need to speak a little louder. Buddha nature to the fall, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> the fourth paragraph. Yeah, um, the true self revealing itself to the fall. The true self revealing itself in life and death. And I was thinking. Mm -hmm. um, Yesterday we were yesterday we were on a boat, actually. 
reading this, and I remember you said, this book needs a little TLC. Mm. You know? And it, do, it does. It was a nice book. It was, don't, get me, don't, get us, don't get me wrong. It just, you know, it was, it just needed a little care. Right? I was thinking of that in terms of um, taking care of life. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily taking care of your ego or yourself or, you know, but just taking care of life. Mm -hmm while you're on that boat, you and the boat are one, you and the boat are life and death. And taking care of death means taking care of the things that are, that may be not as strong. Taking care of the things and reinforcing, um, and, and nurturing, um, letting go of what you, of what you have and also what you don't have. Like, um, I guess an example would be at work. Um, there are better teachers there, you know. Teachers who have more, not necessarily better, but, you know, more experience. And um, nurturing, uh, instead, of, instead of my looking at them and saying, well, they have this and they have that and they have that on me and, and being, um, and taking away from them by being envious of them. Um, take, uh, allowing that to develop into, well, maybe they have something that I can learn from. Can you deny that though? You can't deny the fact that, that they, have. they have experience that you may not yet have. You cannot deny that. We don't deny that. What we do deny is all things have Buddha nature. That we deny, yeah. but you cannot, we should not deny the fact that it's true that experience is experience, experience. and we can learn. Yeah. But how do we do that without denying with the nature, seamlessness, all things endowed with the nature? Well, as a priest, um, we take a vow uh, to support life, to nurture life. Mm -hmm. and when you nurture the experience or the, the wisdom in another, you're nurturing yourself. You are what you nurture. You are what you nurture. Right, and if you deal with it in a careless way, then there's no reverence there. And you're not taking care of the boat that you're on. And Yet, at the same time, at the same time, it's fully functional. As that, as not caring for. Yeah. Also, fully functioning. That's what he's saying. It's not based on how we treat it or how we, or how we feel about it. Which is, in practice, this is something we have to get out of and, and train from that understanding that at all times, fully functioning. And that's what we deny, essentially. That's what we go against. So, yeah. Should we stay on that side? Or? So, I was thinking on the ingredient list. Yes. Um, I like that because it's thinking of on, on the practice of, of uh, looking at what life is giving you at any moment. Mm -hmm. There's always things that you lack. Sometimes things that are happening outside 
And those are the easiest. You know, like uh, if it was that hard, it was that hard inside. You know, moments that you feel maybe envious about something, maybe too greedy, as you notice, mm -hmm. maybe uh, unhappy about what's going on. And uh, what is interesting is that I was trying to see, I mean, what do you do with those, those ingredients, you know? And learning how to cook with them is the, the ones internal. It actually has to do with something interesting that sometimes what I found is that those ingredients, the ones I don't like, they are urging me to cook with them. Mm. And the meal is very bad, you know? And I don't know for some reason, it's like they're urging me to do stuff. You're saying, you're having this, this is bad, you should go and shop these people and do something and mm -hmm. you know, take action and do, I don't know what, and, and keep on the doing and doing and doing that is based on that insatisfaction that is not necessarily true. It's just mm -hmm. you know, like an idea or, or a momentary ingredient because the ingredients change all the time. So it's interesting how, how we have this urge mm -hmm. and how to not use them, how to say, okay, well, I, I don't need to use mm -hmm. whatever I don't, you know, I don't think it's needed this time. Uh, that, that is tough. I mean, that's what I found to be um, kind of the practice of this. It's like, it doesn't change, it's that recognition that maybe it has to do with the recognition we were saying about the nature is that, you know, there's not necessarily something you need to do about anything that is not working. Mm. Well, but, you know, we, we function from an, with an assumption that there's something wrong and we have to make it right. Exactly. Right. But every day is a good day, as Uman said, right? If we understand every day is a good day, then something is already right. How do we work with it then? And, and, and that's the urge. The urge is to change it because it's wrong. Right. It's the lack of recognition. When does it become right? It's the lack of recognition that it's not wrong. I mean, it's not wrong that I'm feeling unhappy. It's just not feeling happy. You know, and, and, it's, and, and the reason that is that I think it's wrong is making me more happy. And you know, like I start to add stuff to it, and it's like I'm cooking this very witchy spot. You yeah. know, like, <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, it is like full of uh, you know cattails and spiders and whatnot. You know, and, and uh, that's that's how I found myself doing and trying to cut that, uh, which is another problem because when you're trying to cut it, then you're also forcing it out, which is, you know, yeah. but it's the recognition, like you said, it's, what's lacking there is that recognition of, this is fine, and, you know, I'm not there yet, of course. But what's lacking is the recognition, not the thing. And that's clear, because I mean, like, all the other paths, they're always not going anyway. But, but you know, remember, we feed the hungry ghost, right? I mean, we give, what, seven grain of rice to the hungry ghost every time we eat, right? What mm -hmm. we eat, yeah, traditionally. Yeah. Right? But we don't reject anything. Nothing is rejected. Buddhism does not reject anything. Because there's nothing to reject. There's nothing there. But it appears as demons and snakes and dragons and, right? But there's nothing there. There's nothing that is not. And that would be the nature. That's what gets tricky. And this is what we have to talk about. That's what gets difficult for us. Because 
Even we practice, there is what we call, and Kitchener talking about uh, ascending the mountain and descending the mountain, right? So we talk about ascending the mountain to the peak of realization. And then we don't stay there because there's nobody else there, so you gotta go down the mingle with the dragons and snakes and right? Yeah, there is that, but even that is made up in a way. It's made up because essentially this is the peak. And it's not the peak at the same time. Yeah, because if you save the peak, you can try. But we cannot save it. <laughs> right? Because there's practice. And it's not a trap. It's not, it's not, I mean, what Dogen is saying, his language sometimes seems thick, heavy, and it's not. It's actually very pragmatic. He was called mystical realist in one book about him. Because it's very pragmatic, very tangible, realistic, about life, about you. Driving the car, going to the brewery, taking care of things, making phone calls. That's what it's about. Okay, yes. I just wanna sorry, I just want to build on um, what you were saying and maybe also um, <clears throat> you look at it through a slightly different lens that I thought was relevant, but it spurred something that you were saying. So um, most people in this room know, um, not everybody, most people in this room know that Part of what I do um, is I create fragrances, right? I, I do perfumery, right? I make fragrances. And, you know, that analogy is so relevant, I think, to what Dogen is saying. And, you know, um, and between what you were saying as well, right? Around, you know, learning to work with the ingredients that, that we have in front of us. But in perfumery, there's a, there's a really interesting thing, right, in which we, we work with all kinds of ingredients, right? You know, we work with, you know, really, you know, um, sweet ingredients, things that are very appealing, things that are very easy to work with, you know? And we work with very, you know, difficult ingredients too, right? I mean, we, we get ingredients from all around the world that come from, you know, places and um, and and uh, and animals that you know. I mean, if you were to smell those ingredients on their own, they're rough. I mean, they're really they're really difficult to work with. But the art of perfumery actually lies in figuring out how to use those ingredients, right? So if I were just to make a, a fragrance that just smells like you know um, lemon and vanilla and you know. Rose, right? It's not that interesting. It's 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 not that not that interesting. But it's only when we when we really learn to incorporate those difficult ingredients, those pungent ingredients, those ingredients that stink, right? That we actually start to create something that that is meaningful in some way, something that is actually interesting, you know. And and so I was just thinking about that analogy, and I was thinking about our conversation down in. in Focus on it. It's you know how do we how do it, it, in our own practice how do we look and examine those pungent stinky ingredients right 
And rather than try and figure out how am I going to work around it, or how am I going to get rid of it altogether, um, you know, how do we in a way emphasize it in our practice? How do we go deeper into that, right? And and try and you know understand it in a way that that allows us to be able to use it and work with it, right? Because um, if we don't, you know, it's it's we're going to have a pretty bland fragrance. We're going to have a pretty bland life, right? And so, you know, you just triggered. You know that thought in even again the way that you were talking about it, right? And I was just thinking about you know how how do we take those difficult moments, right? And and really look at those, examine those, um, work with those. Um, well, but by not defining the segment, not defining or not defining the segment, then it's neither difficult nor easy. Right. Neither pungent nor smells good. Right. What right. is it? Right, exactly. What is it? What is it when it does not? When it's not falling into any category? Then, then, then what happens is that it's like he's using the, the analogy of, um, of a car or whatever it is. Oh, then you just wear it. <laughs> you just. You just wear it. You are it, and it is you. Right, right. And you and actually, without this, there's no you, and without you, there's no this. Right, right. And, and again, perfumery in this way is, is a wonderful metaphor yeah. because it, it commingles. Yeah. <laughs> it commingles. You become part of it, and it becomes part of you yeah. in, in a way that many other things don't. And so, and so there is this commingling that has to happen, um, you know, with it. So, yeah. And it actually smells different on each person. And it smells very different on each person. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say that, that it, you know, the same fragrance, you know, you enjoy it and someone passes by. And then you think like, oh, I want it, you know, I love that scent. And then you go by it and you go, oh, I don't like the way it yeah. smells on me. So you can appreciate it on someone else's and you can look at it. But once you have it in your hands, it doesn't have the same scent, it doesn't have the same value anymore. It does, you cannot enjoy it as much, right? But, but that, that, the experience, and this is what Dogen I think was saying, the experience yeah. of that fragrance doesn't exist without yeah. you not experiencing it. It's right? Right. It's right. You know, the fragrance and you exist together. If you're not there to smell it, if you're not there to experience it, it doesn't, it's just a, a compilation of notes at that point, just molecules. Nothing is separate from anything, but right. it's in science too, and Washington can talk about that, but in science too, uh, the observer and what is being observed exactly. are, you know, commingle and <laughs> affect one another, and nothing exists in isolation, even scientifically speaking. So, right, right. The question is, do we recognize it? Do we live by that? Or do we live with an assumption that it is separate? Right. 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 So I guess that, you know, if you think like this, you said the perception, <clears throat> um, when something shows up in your life, you know, um, I think that what makes it more interesting, as you said, is when you go through a difficult time, a difficult situation, or an unpleasant moment, is your perception of how you're thinking of this moment is that something that's interfering 
with your goals or your plans for that day, or if you look at it as a, as a blessing in disguise, as a, a situation or a moment to help you grow. Because pleasantness and everything going smooth and everything going wonderful, it, like you said, it's planned. You have to suffer a little bit so that you can appreciate the days that you don't, and things all go well. You know, otherwise you don't appreciate a beautiful sunny day. You don't experience days of, you know, rain. And even the rain itself, it's, it's beautiful, right? It has its purpose in our life, you know? So, yeah, the perception has a lot to do with, you know, how do we experience our life? You know, if we think of every moment, every unpleasant moment as, you know, something that's, you know, putting you down or you're losing <clears throat> you're losing something. If you look at it, is I'm gaining something. I'm gaining something from the experience. I'm gaining resilience. I'm uh, gaining a coping me mechanism. I'm gaining something to learn how to work. And when someone else goes through this situation, gaining a little wisdom that you can, you know, let them know, yeah, it's going to be all right. You've been there, done that. You'll, you'll be fine, you know. But you can't say that unless you've like, experienced it. You know, you, can, you cannot go over there to someone that's suffering and tell them, I understand your pain, I know what you're going through, if you've never experienced it. And you know, I think that we need to suffer, we need to experience it all so that we can be better teachers and better leaders and, you know, having the experience, the wisdom to, to say, yeah, I understand. I know what you're going through. And even though their experience is going to be different from yours, you have some kind of a, a guidance or something that says, yeah, okay, yeah, this person is going through one of those moments. But again, feel it and just don't attach to it. Let it, let it be, be the experience. Let it, let it be the lesson. Hold on to the lesson and not hold on to the the, the pain itself. So how do you use the ingredients? So how do you bring it together, embrace it all in your life? There are different challenges you're dealing with. Well, you don't have to get into the challenges themselves, but the question is, do you see this way? So I'm not, I'm an emotional being. Every time I, I experience something, you know, it's always in, deep in the emotions. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've noticed that through my practice, I don't live in those emotions as much as I used to, you know. Um, yeah, I feel it. I feel the anger. I feel the frustration. I feel, but I know through experiences mm -hmm. that nothing stays the same. Everything is constant changing and evolving. And just because you have a crappy day one day doesn't mean that every day that follows that it's going to be crappy, you know. Um, and just because you're going through a difficult moment doesn't mean that that moment is going to stay there and you're going to stay stagnant in that place and in that emotion. So, yeah, the, my ingredients I try to focus on is I work with what's in front of me. I work with what's in my pantry, right? I, I, I look and I look at the combination of what I want to use and, 
you know, today I'm going to use this. Today I'm going to use yoga and I'm going to stretch because my body is telling me that that's what it needs. Today I need some emotional support. Today, you know, I need to call up a friend or listen to some music or go outside and garden. Today I just need silence. I need to stay away from everyone because I need to regroup my thoughts and I need to sit or I need to read something that helps me, you know, personally, to grow personally and stuff like that. So sometimes if you, I sit stagnant and I'm like, I need to move, I need to go out, I need to do something because I've been sitting or been idle too long. So I, I go by according to what I'm feeling, what my body's telling me that it needs and what needs to be taken care of at that moment. Yeah, but do you reckon, see the thing, what he's saying is not a single matter, not a single set of mind, he's not. I've also thought of that. So do you recognize, do we recognize practitioners that every single state of mind is it in the same way? It doesn't feel the same way, but it in the same way. So it's not that I'm moving from one thing to another as much as just maybe different manifestation. Yeah. But every single state of mind is fully, fully functioning to use both. Nothing stays the same is actually an affirmation. It's not a negation. Nothing stays the same. And everything changes. But look at it differently. Nothing stays the same. And everything changes. Do you see? I mean, we have to go beyond the connotations. Because infinite, no things do. Right. Right. But in that, in that is what he's talking about here, right? Everything, every single state of mind is of the same true nature. Which you could say stays the same. But it doesn't stay the same in a way that we think of it, right? It's not that it is stuck. It's not that it is, it's not changing form, or appearance, or shape, right? That's not the meaning. It stays the same as essence. It is of the same essence. Therefore, every state of mind is it. Right? How could it not be? The crappy ones and the great ones. Right? And again, ingredients, right? I go back to all the ingredients. I feel stuck, okay, I feel stuck. But it doesn't mean that something is reduced. You're not reduced. You are not reduced to being stuck. As long as you are identified. And even when you are identified, you still are not reduced to anything. But there is a feeling of being reduced. And then everything narrows down to just that. That feeling. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm trying uh, in the situations like when we have to deal with this unpleasant ingredients, mm -hmm. how to how to not lose the sense of the larger picture. Mm -hmm. like, um, to not get uh, to be focused on what we're dealing with, and at the same time, um, to to not lose, to not be overwhelmed by reaction to that. Like uh, difficult ingredients trigger something 
difficult, some kind of unpleasant emotion in us. And uh, when we lose sense of, uh, you know, <laughs> getting overwhelmed by just this, a fight happened basically. Mm. We, we don't get anywhere because we start to see things from the very small perspective. Mm. Um, and uh, when I not lose this sense of the larger perspective, then it's easier for me to be less judgmental, just to take responsibility, deal mm. with it, with this without a sense of the judgment, like why this person is not responsible. But maybe, you know, it's it's very different situation and perspective from what I'm judging right now. That's what happens and that person is acting. So I'm trying to, and it's not easy, but uh, when, uh, when it happens, um, I think uh, um, the situation goes more smoothly and, uh, and the solution comes uh, kind of uh, not... <laughs> Uh, the situation can be resolved better than uh, from the emotional, um, when I'm emotional. And it happens with my family members. Some family members from abroad calling me when <laughs> more often than my, uh, my children. And I'm, like, I'm trying to understand what is going on versus being very emotional and, <laughs> and judgmental. Just why this person does not have sense of responsibility at the moment. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, it's very important to understand what difficult situation triggers in, in you and uh, kind of uh, recognize it and, uh, and look at the larger perspective that it's not, not all um, at this moment. And it becomes more beneficial, right? So what you're saying is that you become uh, more beneficial to others, right? And mm -hmm. uh, more effective. Mm -hmm. And uh, right, the recognition of functioning fully at all times, right? To stay within that. At all times is to not get caught up in this. Like you said, you, you're not reduced to that uh, situation. No. But that's how it feels. Happens. At it that feels moment, that's how it feels. Right? And that's where, this is where, so we have to do the work. We have to apply the practice at those moments, probably more than any other moments, because this is where it's needed. Right? So we have to turn the lights on brightly and recognize nothing is lost, although it feels as if something is lost. Right? Because every, every aspect is fully. But Dogen also said that going one mile east is going one mile west. Which again, goes against our common sense. Thinking, how is it possible? It's this is not that, it's that, it's not this. But we have a technique, some of you, those of you who practice Aikido, we have a technique called Shihonage, which means four direction throw or cut. But it really means 360. And it's not that good doing, you know, Shihonage to the right has is better than doing it to the left. It's situational based, obviously. But the shinonage itself, the cut itself, is always the same cut. The movement is the same movement. Not more, not less. Yet that movement sometimes is this way, sometimes is that way. But always is 
the same movement of the same nature, the same principles apply. Where, whichever direction you turn to, whichever direction you cut towards. But we give it different names, and that's where we get caught up, right? Well, I like this better than that, because the view is better. Anybody else? Yeah. Clear mind, mind. You need to do your utmost to explore to your training what is going on at this very moment. Mm -hmm. cool. You're driving, or you are in the boat, you are there, right? You, you steer, you're looking at the traffic, you make your left, you make your right, you are present. The phone rings, somebody tells you, hey, your friend for 30 years has cancer. Now what are you doing? You're still driving, you have to drive. Meanwhile, your voice comes and says, hey, you know, this is Isan, this is, uh, very close to him. Mm -hmm. to you. Yeah. So your mind keeps telling me, what's going on, you know? This is, you're trying to drive at the same time. So how do you function? How do you... So you have to. Have to is one thing. How do you? <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's the, the question. Because we always, you know, we, we go in with our life and things are coming from left and right and sometimes they're perceive good or bad things and strongly sometimes we, we take those things and they torment us or we have to do something about them. Right? Do I have to do something? What can I do? You want to drive in or anything food? So so you get news and this is this is uh okay. Somebody a friend is uh dealing with a life threatening illness. Okay. Death. That's what Dogen is talking about as well, obviously here. But how do we how do we not see that as wrong? How do we not see that as something wrong? This should not happen. Not now, anyway, based on our whatever thoughts we have, right? It should not happen now. It will happen, there's no doubt, but not now. But based on what again, what are the parameters? Well, if I'm saying it shouldn't happen, I'm saying I know it shouldn't happen and I have parameters. Right. But what are the parameters that based on those, I am saying it should not happen now? Yeah. Not to him, not to my friend, not to... And you cannot deny the feeling. I mean, the feeling is, is real and is strong. But it will happen. It will happen while you're doing something and there will be divergence which should try to say hey go this way go that. Well then how, how is death liberating us from death? At that moment, how how does that make sense? How can death liberate you from death? Or him? It doesn't mean. In my mind you just accept it. And the only question comes to I know it's gonna happen sooner or later. The question is can I do anything or should I have? Do I have to do anything? Well, you may be able to do a lot, but that's besides that. That's that's not negating anything. He said, "If you can do, do." 
but that's besides the point of, of clarifying what Rabbi is trying to point at. Again, how, how can death liberate us from death? Maybe we can
but you think that you are different from others, but you are not that different because the uh, because of those old, you know, outlayer who who, who uh, you know deceive you. So if thinking that way, then the uh, compassion should be more natural. Comes out then the uh, rather than thinking the ego and I'm different and I'm untreated, you know, uh, don't deserve, but. If you approach that to more compassion, like we all same, and and, and and then we connected. If you like, as as we talk, if I move this finger, then the other my finger move. So so everything is connected. So the uh, of course the uh, ego always exists there. We we coexist. But I reason I'm thinking you don't have to, I don't have to make a too much big deal about it because again. I used to try to think that that was a come and go and try to convince myself, but it doesn't fit to me very well. Mm. But if you think like the, uh, these are all connected and uh, you know, having compassion is more so natural way, that fit me better than try to get rid of or try to convince myself that, oh, these are not staying with me. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's not eternal, it's gone. Rather than that, I'm, I'm trying to think that the, uh, you know, it's, it's connected anyway. So why do we fight with that? It's, to me, it's more natural. I think it depends upon different people accept in different ways. But to me, that's come to more natural to my mind. That's what you discover. So if I think like that way, then uh, usually my mind is pretty peaceful these days. Less resistance, less inner resistance, less uh, chopping up, less rejecting. Mm -hmm. right? You're not rejecting, you're saying I'm not rejecting, yes. I'm embracing right. everything and everybody. Mm -hmm. right. Everything and everybody. Right, and that typically makes all the relation and things much smoother too. So it's kind of bonus. Bonus, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it becomes easier to uphold the precepts. Right. Exactly. So the precepts take care of themselves uh, when we recognize. Mm. It's true. Thank you. Uh, Amanda. Okay, so we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up with that and uh, take that text with you. I'm going to email the text as well with, uh, with the talk, with the number. And uh, yeah, walk with that. See what it takes you. Go out there and uh, unpack it. 